0: Part 16 of Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin Solon, Part 2 But the Athenians, now that the Silonian disturbance was over and the polluted persons banished, as described, relapsed into their old disputes about the form of government, the city being divided into as many parties as there were diversities in its territory the hill men favoured an extreme democracy, the plain men an extreme oligarchy, the shore men formed a third party which preferred an intermediate and mixed form of government, was opposed to the other two, and prevented either from gaining the ascendancy. At that time, too, the disparity between the rich and the poor had culminated, as it were, and the city was in an altogether perilous condition it seemed as if the only way to settle its disorders and stop its turmoils was to establish a tyranny all the common people were in debt to the rich for they either tilled their lands for them paying them a sixth of the increase whence they were called hectimorioi and thetes or else they pledged their persons for debts and could be seized by their creditors, some becoming slaves at home, and others being sold into foreign countries. Many, too, were forced to sell their own children, for there was no law against it, or go into exile because of the cruelty of the money-lenders. But the most and sturdiest of them began to band together and exhort one another not to submit to their wrongs, but to choose a trusty man as their leader, set free the condemned debtors, divide the land anew, and make an entire change in the form of government. At this point the wisest of the Athenians cast their eyes upon Solon. They saw that he was the one man least implicated in the errors of the time, that he was neither associated with the rich in their injustice, nor involved in the necessities of the poor. They therefore besought him to come forward publicly, and put an end to the prevailing dissensions. And yet Phanias, the lesbian, writes that Solon, of his own accord, played a trick upon both parties in order to save the city, and secretly promised to the poor the distribution of land which they desired, and to the rich, validation of their securities. But Solon himself says that he entered public life reluctantly, and fearing one party's greed and the other party's arrogance. However, he was chosen archon to succeed Philombrotus, and made mediator and legislator for the crisis, the rich accepting him readily because he was well-to-do, and the poor because he was honest. It is also said that a certain utterance of his which was current before his election, to the effect that equality bred no war, pleased both the men of substance and those who had none, the former expecting to have equality based on worth and excellence, the latter on measure and count. Therefore both parties were in high hopes, and their chief men persistently recommended a tyranny to Solon and tried to persuade him to seize the city all the more confidently, now that he had it completely in his power. Many citizens, too, who belonged to neither party, seeing that it would be a laborious and difficult matter to effect a change by means of argument and law, were not reluctant to have one man, the justest and wisest of all, put at the head of the state. Furthermore, some say that Solon got an oracle at Pytho, which ran as follows. Take thy seat amidships, the pilot's task is thine. Perform it, many in Athens are thine allies. And above all his familiar friends chid him for being averse to absolute power because of the name of tyranny, as if the virtues of him who seized it would not at once make it a lawful sovereignty. Euboea, they argued, had formerly found this true of Tinondas, and so had the Mityleneans now that they had chosen Pittacus, to be their tyrant. None of these things shook Solon from his resolution. To his friends he said, as we are told, that a tyranny was a lovely place, but there was no way down from it. And in his poems he writes to Focus, And if, he says, I spared my land, my native land, and unto tyranny and violence implacable did not set hand, polluting and disgracing my frail fame, I'm not ashamed. In this way rather shall my name be set above that of all other men from this it is clear that even before his legislation he was in high repute and as for the ridicule which many heaped upon him for refusing the tyranny he has written as follows solon was a shallow thinker and a man of counsel void when the gods would give him blessings of his own will he refused when his net was full of fish amazed he would not pull it in all for lack of spirit, and because he was bereft of sense. I had certainly been willing for the power and boundless wealth, and to be tyrant over Athens no more than a single day, than to have a pouch flayed from me, and my lineage blotted out. Thus he represents the multitude, and men of low degree as speaking of him. However, though he rejected the tyranny, he did not administer affairs in the mildest possible manner, nor in the enactment of his laws did he show a feeble spirit, nor make concessions to the powerful, nor consult the pleasure of his electors. Nay, where a condition was as good as it could well be, he applied no remedy, and introduced no innovation fearing lest, after utterly confusing and confounding the city, he should be too weak to establish it again and recompose it for the best. But those things wherein he hoped to find them open to persuasion or submissive to compulsion, these he did, combining both force and justice together, as he says himself. Therefore, when he was afterwards asked if he had enacted the best laws for the Athenians, he replied, The best they would receive. Now, later writers observe that the ancient Athenians used to cover up the ugliness of things with auspicious and kindly terms, giving them polite and endearing names. Thus, they called harlots companions, taxes contributions the garrison of a city its guard, and the prison a chamber. But Solon was the first, it would seem, to use this device when he called his cancelling of debts disburdenment, for the first of his public measures was an enactment that existing debts should be remitted, and that in future no one should lend money on the person of a borrower. Some writers, however, and Androtion is one of them, Affirmed that the poor were relieved not by a cancelling of debts, but by a reduction of the interest upon them, and showed their satisfaction by giving the name of disburdenment to this act of humanity, and to the augmentation of measures and the purchasing power of money which accompanied it. For he made the miner to consist of a hundred drachmas, which before had contained only seventy-three, so that by paying the same amount of money, but money of a lesser value, those who had debts to discharge were greatly benefited, and those who accepted such payments were no losers. But most writers agree that the disburdenment was a removal of all debt, and with such the poems of Solon are more in accord, for in these he proudly boasts that from the mortgaged lands he took away the record-stones that everywhere were planted. Before earth was in bondage, now she is free. And of the citizens whose persons had been seized for debt, some he brought back from foreign lands, uttering no longer attic speech, so long and far their wretched wanderings, and some who here at home in shameful servitude were held, he says he set free. This undertaking is said to have involved him in the most vexatious experience of his life, for when he had set out to abolish debts, and was trying to find fitting arguments and a suitable occasion for the step, he told some of his most trusted and intimate friends, namely Conon, Cleinias, and Hipponicus, that he was not going to meddle with the land, but had determined to cancel debts. They immediately took advantage of this confidence, and anticipated Solon's decree by borrowing large sums from the wealthy and buying up great estates. Then, when the decree was published, they enjoyed the use of their properties, but refused to pay the monies due their creditors. This brought Solon into great condemnation and odium, as if he had not been imposed upon with the rest, but were a party to the imposition. However, this charge was at once dissipated by his well-known sacrifice of five talents, for it was found that he had lent so much, and he was the first to remit this debt in accordance with his law. Some say that the sum was fifteen talents, and among them is Polyzelus the Rhodian, but his friends were ever after called Creocopidae, or debt cutters. He pleased neither party, however. The rich were vexed because he took away their securities for debt, and the poor still more because he did not redistribute the land as they had expected, nor make all men equal and alike in their way of living as Lycurgus did. But Lycurgus was eleventh in descent from Heracles and had been king in Lacedaemon for many years. He therefore had great authority, many friends, and power to support his reforms in the commonwealth. He also employed force rather than persuasion, insomuch that he actually lost his eye thereby, and most effectually guaranteed the safety and unanimity of the city by making all its citizens neither poor nor rich. Solon, on the contrary, could not secure this feature in his commonwealth, since he was a man of the people and of modest station. Yet he in no wise acted short of his real power, relying as he did only on the wishes of the citizens and their confidence in him. Nevertheless, he gave offence to the greater part of them, who expected different results, as he himself says of them in the lines, then they had extravagant thoughts of me but now incensed all look askance at me as if i were their foe and yet had any other man he says acquired the same power he had not held the people down nor made an end until he had confounded all and skimmed the cream soon however they perceived the advantages of his measure ceased from their private fault-finding, and offered a public sacrifice which they called sysechtheia, or disburdenment. They also appointed Solon to reform the constitution and make new laws, laying no restrictions whatever upon him, but putting everything into his hands, magistracies, assemblies, courts of law, and councils. He was to fix the property qualification for each of these their numbers and their times of meeting, abrogating and maintaining existing institutions at his pleasure. In the first place, then, he repealed the laws of Draco, all except those concerning homicide, because they were too severe and their penalties too heavy. For one penalty was assigned to almost all transgressions, namely death so that even those convicted of idleness were put to death, and those who stole salad or fruit received the same punishment as those who committed sacrilege or murder. Therefore Demades, in later times, made a hit when he said that Draco's laws were written not with ink, but blood. And Draco himself, they say, being asked why he made death the penalty for most offences, Replied that in his opinion the lesser ones deserved it, and for the greater ones no heavier penalty could be found. In the second place, wishing to leave all the magistracies in the hands of the well to do as they were, but to give the common people a share in the rest of the government of which they had hitherto been deprived, Solon made an appraisement of the property of the citizens. Those who enjoyed a yearly increase of five hundred measures wet and dry, he placed in the first class, and called them pentacosiomedimnoi. The second class was composed of those who were able to keep a horse or had a yearly increase of three hundred measures, and they were called Hippodertilantes since they paid a knight's tax. The members of the third class, whose yearly increase amounted to two hundred measures, wet and dry together, were called Zugitai. All the rest were called Thetis. They were not allowed to hold any office, but took part in the administration only as members of the Assembly and as jurors. This last privilege seemed at first of no moment. But afterwards proved to be of the very highest importance, since most disputes finally came into the hands of these jurors. For even in cases which Solon assigned to the magistrates for decision, he allowed also an appeal to a popular court when any one desired it. Besides, it is said that his laws were obscurely and ambiguously worded on purpose to enhance the power of the popular courts for since parties to a controversy could not get satisfaction from the laws, the result was that they always wanted jurors to decide it, and every dispute was laid before them, so that they were in a manner masters of the laws. And he himself claims the credit for this in the following words. For to the common people I gave so much power as is sufficient, neither robbing them of dignity, nor giving them too much. And those who had power and were marvellously rich, even for these I contrived that they suffered no harm. I stood with a mighty shield in front of both classes, and suffered neither of them to prevail unjustly. Moreover, thinking it his duty to make still further provision for the weakness of the multitude, he gave every citizen the privilege of entering suit in behalf of one who had suffered wrong. If a man was assaulted and suffered violence or injury, it was the privilege of any one who had the ability and the inclination to indict the wrongdoer and prosecute him. The lawgiver in this way rightly accustomed the citizens, as members of one body, to feel and sympathize with one another's wrongs and we are told of a saying of his which is consonant with this law. Being asked, namely, what city was best to live in, that city, he replied, in which those who are not wronged, no less than those who are wronged, exert themselves to punish the wrongdoers. After he had established the council of the Areopagus, consisting of those who had been archons year by year, and he himself was a member of this body since he had been Archon, he observed that the common people were uneasy and bold in consequence of their release from debt, and therefore established another council besides, consisting of four hundred men, one hundred chosen from each of the four tribes. These were to deliberate on public matters before the people did, and were not to allow any matter to come before the popular assembly without such previous deliberation. Then he made the upper council a general overseer in the state, and guardian of the laws, thinking that the city with its two councils, riding as it were at double anchor, would be less tossed by the surges, and would keep its populace in greater quiet. Now most writers say that the council of the Areopagus, as I have stated, was established by Solon, and their view seems to be strongly supported by the fact that Draco nowhere makes any mention whatsoever of Areopagites, but always addresses himself to the Ephetai in cases of homicide. Yet Solon's thirteenth table contains the eighth of his laws recorded in these very words, as many of the disfranchised as were made such before the archonship of Solon shall be restored to their rights and franchises, except such as were condemned by the Areopagus, or by the Epheti or in the Pritanaeum by the kings, on charges of murder or homicide, or of seeking to establish a tyranny, and were in exile when this law was published. This surely proves to the contrary that the Council of the Areopagus was in existence before the archonship and legislation of Solon, for how could men have been condemned in the Areopagus before the time of Solon if Solon was the first to give the Council of the Areopagus its jurisdiction? Perhaps, indeed, there is some obscurity in the document, or some omission, and the meaning is that those who had been convicted on charges within the cognizance of those who were areopagites and ephetai and prytanese when the law was published should remain disfranchised while those convicted on all other charges should recover their rights and franchises this question however my reader must decide for himself among his other laws there is a very peculiar and surprising one Which ordains that he shall be disfranchised who, in time of faction, takes neither side. He wishes, probably, that a man should not be insensible or indifferent to the common weal, arranging his private affairs securely and glorying in the fact that he has no share in the distempers and distresses of his country, but should rather espouse promptly the better and more righteous cause. "'share its perils and give it his aid, "'instead of waiting in safety to see which cause prevails. "'That law, too, seems absurd and ridiculous, "'which permits an heiress, "'in case the man under whose power and authority she is placed by law "'is himself unable to consort with her, "'to be married by one of his next of kin.' Some, however, say that this was a wise provision against those who are unable to perform the duties of a husband, and yet for the sake of their property marry heiresses, and so under cover of law do violence to nature, for when they see that the heiress can consort with whom she pleases, they will either desist from such a marriage, or make it to their shame and be punished for their avarice and insolence. It is a wise provision, too, that the heiress may not choose her consort at large, but only from the kinsman of her husband, that her offspring may be of his family and lineage. Conformable to this also is the requirement that the bride eat a quince, and be shut up in a chamber with the bridegroom, and that the husband of an heiress shall approach her thrice a month without fail for even though they have no children, still this is a mark of esteem and affection which a man should pay to a chaste wife. It removes many of the annoyances which develop in all such cases, and prevents their being altogether estranged by their differences. In all other marriages he prohibited dowries. The bride was to bring with her three changes of raiment, household stuff of small value, and nothing else. For he did not wish that marriage should be a matter of profit or price, but that man and wife should dwell together for the delights of love and the getting of children. Dionysius, indeed, when his mother asked him to give her in marriage to one of his citizens, said that, although he had broken the laws of the city by being its tyrant, he could not outrage the laws of nature by giving in marriage where age forbade and so our cities should not allow this irregularity, nor tolerate unions which age forbids and love does not invite, which do not fulfil the function of marriage, and defeat its object. Nay, to an old man who is marrying a young wife, any worthy magistrate or lawgiver might say what is said to Philoctetes. Indeed, poor wretch, Thou art in fine state for marrying. And if he discovers a young man in the house of a rich and elderly woman, Waxing fat like a cock-partridge in her service, He will remove him and give him to some marriageable maid that wants a husband. Thus much, then, on this head. Praise is given also to that law of Solon which forbids speaking ill of the dead for it is piety to regard the deceased as sacred, justice to spare the absent, and good policy to rob hatred of its perpetuity. He also forbade speaking ill of the living in temples, courts of law, public offices, and at festivals. The transgressor must pay three drachmas to the person injured, and two more into the public treasury." For never to master one's anger is a mark of intemperance and lack of training, but always to do so is difficult, and for some impossible, and a law must regard the possibilities in the case if its maker wishes to punish a few to some purpose, and not many to no purpose. He was highly esteemed also for his law concerning wills. Before his time no will could be made, but the entire estate of the deceased must remain in his family, whereas he, by permitting a man who had no children to give his property to whom he wished, ranked friendship above kinship, and favour above necessity, and made a man's possessions his own property. On the other hand, he did not permit all manner of gifts without restriction or restraint, but only those which were not made under the influence of sickness or drugs or imprisonment, or when a man was the victim of compulsion or yielded to the persuasions of his wife. He thought, very rightly and properly, that being persuaded into wrong was no better than being forced into it, and he placed deceit and compulsion, gratification and affliction, in one and the same category believing that both were alike able to pervert a man's reason. He also subjected the public appearances of the women, their mourning and their festivals, to a law which did away with disorder and license. When they went out they were not to wear more than three garments, they were not to carry more than an obel's worth of food or drink, nor a pannier more than a cubit high, and they were not to travel about by night "'unless they rode in a waggon with a lamp to light their way. "'Laceration of the flesh by mourners, and the use of set lamentations, "'and the bewailing of any one at the funeral ceremonies of another, he forbade. "'The sacrifice of an ox at the grave was not permitted, "'nor the burial with the dead of more than three changes of raiment nor the visiting of other tombs than those of their own family except at the time of interment. Most of these practices are also forbidden by our laws, but ours contain the additional proviso that such offenders shall be punished by the board of censors for women, because they indulge in unmanly and effeminate extravagances of sorrow when they mourn. Observing that the city was getting full of people who were constantly streaming into Attica from all quarters for greater security of living, and that most of the country was unfruitful and worthless, and that seafaring men are not wont to import goods for those who have nothing to give them in exchange, he turned the attention of the citizens to the arts of manufacture and enacted a law that no son who had not been taught a trade should be compelled to support his father. It was well enough for Lycurgus, whose city was free from swarms of strangers, and whose country was, in the words of Euripides, for many large, for twice as many more than large, and because, above all, that country was flooded with a multitude of helots whom it was better not to leave in idleness, but to keep down by continual hardships and toil, it was well enough for him to set his citizens free from laborious and mechanical occupations, and confine their thoughts to arms, giving them this one trade to learn and practice.' But Solon, adapting his laws to the situation rather than the situation to his laws, and observing that the land could give but a mere subsistence to those who tilled it, and was incapable of supporting an unoccupied and leisured multitude, gave dignity to all the trades, and ordered the council of the Areopagus to examine into every man's means of livelihood, and chastise those who had no occupation but that provision of his was yet more severe which as Heraclides ponticus informs us relieved the sons who were born out of wedlock from the necessity of supporting their fathers at all for he that avoids the honourable state of marriage clearly takes a woman to himself not for the sake of children but of pleasure and he has his reward in that he robs himself of all right to upbraid his sons for neglecting him, since he has made their very existence a reproach to them. End of Solon Part 2 Recording by Graham Redmond